Shane McEachran. This is a high honor and distinct privilege. We are joined by a legendary Grammy-winning songwriter, Desmond Child. He has written hits that you've heard probably since before you were born. Uh, Desmond Child, welcome to the show. Hey, it's so great to meet you over the phone. Likewise, likewise. I was wondering about what, when you write a song, I mean, how do you did you approach it differently because of based on who you're writing with or do you hear something on the piano first or do you hear something lyrically or does it just like what's the how do you generally approach it? Well, I've been writing songs ever since I was a little tiny kid because my mother was a songwriter and I, I didn't know that people didn't write songs. And so I, I've always had kind of a natural ability to put words and music together. So when I go into a re writing session, um, I go in cold. I have no ideas. I don't know what the hell we're going to do. We may just end up having coffee and laughing and, you know, let's go shopping or something. Uh, but usually, the, you know, the, the formality of getting together and into a, a space with another songwriter or two, it's a sacred circle. And there's an energy that starts to build in the chemistry between the people in the room. Some people have more chemistry with or that energy with than others, but no one's ever asked for their money back. <laughs> True. Um, do, and I'm sure you get this question all the time from the outsider's perspective, but when you're writing, do, is there a moment when you know that a song's going to be big, or were there songs that were just a total surprise once they took off? Well, I mean, it was, a, it was touch and go with living on a prayer because we wrote the song and I knew we had something special and so did Richie but John had a different concept in his, in his mind as to what Bon Jovi was going to sound like he, I think he wanted to rock out a lot harder and he thought that that song was a little bit sentimental mm. so literally Richie Sambora and I got on our hands and knees literally in front of him and begged him to record the song, at least record it, and then decide later. Mm. And uh, I, they did such an ex extraordinary job with the production with Bruce Fairburn, the late, great Bruce Fairburn, who also was producing Aerosmith yeah. and, um, in Vancouver. And it's just, it's just, from the start, it was exciting, it's cinematic, and it changed the course of pop music. Yeah, it really did. And, and you say in the... Uh the album uh, Desmond Child Live uh, that that song's played in, in bars and all kinds of places it's funny when I was in college that song was already 20 years old it was a massive hit and legendary song then and you know they'd play all the pop stuff and then they'd play that song and it's like you know it's just universal everybody knows it well it's it's you know I'm 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 with ASCAP and I asked you know well when does my song get played and they said well to tell you the truth it's usually the last song played in a bar or a strip <laughs> joint at the end of the night because people will jump up and then they turn on the lights and then they tell people, well, you don't have to go home, but you can't <laughs> stay here. 
That's true. I went to Washington. I'm on the board of ASCAP, so I'm on the legislative committee, and I went to Washington, you know, when when we could, uh, you know, many years in a row. And, and you know, I had to explain, look, I'm an independent uh, songwriter and producer. I don't work for a company. I have employees. I have new technology I have to buy all the time to keep my studio up to date. I have to pay rent on my my where my studio is. I have to pay, you know, like, I keep the lights on. And somehow, you know, people that don't understand how music is made, they think you're just sitting on a porch with a corn cob pipe and a banjo on your knee, and that's your overhead right. to write a song. <laughs> so, you know, I, I had to explain that, you know, a song of, that I collaborated on um, with John Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora, a song we, we all know and love, oh, yeah. Living on a Prayer, yeah. Living on a Prayer, <laughs> it had gotten half a billion downloads that year. This was like a few years ago. I'm not sure what it's, the numbers it's doing now, but it seems like I hear it everywhere. Mm-hmm. And my take-home pay was $6,000. Oh, my God. Unbelievable. Yeah. My son's college with the dorm and food is 80000 a piece. Yeah. Jeez. I'm yeah. spending my life savings to keep to send them to, you know, college. And so it's like... You know, how can somebody decide to make music their career if that's what you get? There were incredible people on both sides of the aisle that saw the need to help. The, you know, guess what? They all love music. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and they all realized that, you know, they had to do something because um, if if people aren't encouraged to to have it as a career and make new music, all you'll be listening to is living on a prayer. Wait a second. That's not a bad idea. <laughs> what am I'm like arguing against myself? What the heck? Yeah. We need to learn uh, the story of Tommy and Gina. I mean, Tommy and Gina, you know, they, they never back down. I mean. <laughs> exactly. No, well, the, the beautiful thing about the writing of that song, uh, you know, I, I think, Living on a Prayer was the second song we wrote. The first song was You Give Love a Bad Name. Yep. And then uh, wow. we we got together and John uh, Bon Jovi said, you know, I want to write a story song about a working class a couple. So in his mind, he was talking, he was thinking about his friends from high school that had gotten married young, uh, Bonnie and Joe. And Richie was thinking about his parents. He still was living at home in New Jersey. And um, so he was thinking about how hard his parents worked to keep, you know, making ends meet. And I was thinking about the the time that I lived with Maria in their little apartment on East 81st Street. And we were together four and a half years. And, uh, you know, I was writing songs. I was going to NYU. On weekends, I'd drive a cab and all this kind of stuff. And she worked as a singing waitress at a place called Once Upon a Stove. And uh, they gave her a, a special, like, waitress name, and it was Gina Velvet. Mm. And yeah. so when we started writing the song, I suggested Johnny and Gina because it had alliteration, J, J, Johnny and Gina. And John said, I can't sing Johnny because that's my name. People think I'm 
people will think that I'm singing about myself. And so we just stood there for a second, and I think he said, Tommy, Tommy and Gina. Mm. And so uh, that's collaboration, you know. So Tommy was sort of like a sound-alike for Johnny. And so uh, that's how Tommy and Gina were born. That's so cool. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, it's so cool. That's awesome. What the what – the, how much did the Warriors movie play into your – was that a big deal? Well, the song on the Warriors soundtrack was called uh, Last of an Ancient Breed. That's it. And it was written specifically for the movie. And right. Desmond Child and Rouge, we were the, the act that performed it. Um, you know, so um, and that was really fun because it, it started giving me the idea that I could write to order, not just write what was, you know, in my heart. And so that had, had served me very well. So it, it's amazing, you know, just like things like that that – have been a part of, you know, have become cultural touchstones. That movie is like crazy cult. Oh, it's huge. It's like yeah. the biggest. Massive. Oh, yeah. And so, um, you know, it, that's how it, that's how it went. And, you know, to this day, like people are, are, are mentioning it to me and sending me copies of the, uh, soundtrack for me to sign and send back to them and, all of that, you know, so it's really, it's really, really cute. <laughs> yeah, I just watched that the other day. It's a great movie. It's, 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 uh, it's a classic, cult classic if you ever, if you ever had one. Yeah. Is that where you, oh, yeah. is that where you like, does that like kind of launch you into meeting Paul and stuff around that time or Paul Stanley? Well, be, uh, before our first album came out, we were playing a, a, and we were just getting signed to Capitol Records. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, Desmond Child and Rouge would play a little club called Tracks on the Upper West Side. It was like oh, underground, yeah. and uh, T R A X. And so uh, Paul came and uh, he hung out with us backstage. And um, you know, at some point, you know, he said, "Hey, why don't we try writing a song together?" And so uh, I said, "Okay, well, um, if you write a song with me for our our group." Then I'll write a song with you for your group. So the song he co-wrote with me, David Landau, is a song called The Fight. Mm. And um, the song that I co-wrote with him uh, is called um, I Was Made for Loving You. Yeah. So I think, yeah. I think I got a better part of that bargain. <laughs> you did, man. That was, yeah. my, that was my first 45 record I ever bought, Desmond. Yeah. So good. And uh, but actually we we recently went through, you know, my catalog. I've written over 20 something songs with Paul Stanley uh, through the course of, you know, 30 years. You know, for a solo record for this and that. Remember uh um to win, you know. Uh, oh my god. <laughs> on South Park, on South Park. How cool was that? Yeah, that was, I did not see that coming. That was one of my favorite um, solo albums. Well, the only the second solo album that Paul did, but I, yeah, that was one of my favorite uh, songs. And um, yeah, I, I've been a huge fan of yours and a huge fan of Paul Stanley's. And and the stuff you've done together is just dynamite. It's so good. And I, I just yeah. think poor Gene though, because you know he's, 
You know, he says, I don't really like going, do, 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 do. <laughs> I was like, he, he, no, but he gets paid handsomely to do it, so I'm sure Gene's not complaining too much. <laughs> no, he he never liked the song because he never was a fan of, of, of R&B music or, you know, like disco music or anything like that. And so, you know, he had a kind of very pure vision of, you know, this kind of metal rock that they had been, you know, inventing. Uh, and, um, you know, but <laughs> ironically, I Was Made For Loving You is, is pretty much one of the, the biggest songs uh, that they're identified with. And it's, it's their biggest international song yeah. um, uh, of all time. If you listen to I Was Made For Loving You, the lyrics are quite simple. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just, you know, a kind of Romeo and Juliet kind of idea, you know. I was made for you, you were made for me, all this, and then it launches into the chorus. And it was the melody that um, brought it all together. You know, everyone can remember. I mean, no matter what it said, you 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 feel that. You know, it's a it's a rise. Da 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 da. The, the ascension, See, that journey, yeah. that melodic journey lifts the spirits. So I, we could have said anything, but it kind of all came together. Sometimes when you add, like, elements from other styles of music, it can, magic can happen, like on, on um, You Give Love a Bad Name and um, Living on a Prayer, the bass lines were, like, R&B bass lines. Yeah, you know. Right, and so there was there was always with Bon Jovi a groove between Tico, who's Cuban like me, and, and you know the grooves that he would put into the drums and the bass lines. You know, you had underneath a real R and B, you know, kind of Latin feel underneath. I mean, it's subtle, but I think it was just enough to make them that much. More different than um, than everyone else. Then, of course, everyone tried to copy them, and then you know that's as it happens. It's, you know, they say imitation is the highest form of flattery. But um, the the music that Bon Jovi made changed the course of pop music. Oh, and and to this day, you know, the that music is is like. New generations are discovering it almost like it's their their music. It's their song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you go to a Bon Jovi concert, you see people of all ages. You know, you see you know people with white hair, and and, <laughs> and those aren't those aren't the punkers. I'm talking about their grandparents. Right, right. And you will see. You know, they always play "Living on a Prayer" last. The yeah. very last song of the very last encore, it could be midnight in a stadium. Yeah. No one will leave without hearing that song. They know it's coming. That's and, right. um, you know, and it's so thrilling because, you know, I've been to so many Bon Jovi concerts and you're standing there. I don't even look at the stage. I just look around at the people that know every lyric to the songs I've collaborated with, you know, yeah. with them on. Oh, and um, when Living on a Prayer comes on, the roar of that crowd 
you know, and like there'll be parents though with like little kids sleeping on their shoulders with the, you know, the, the sound block earphones uh-huh. and they'll be standing there, you know, with their kids because they won't go home until they hear that song. And then when that song comes up, you cannot hear the band anymore. All you hear is this roar with all of those, those speakers. You don't hear the band. You just hear people screaming it at the top of the lungs like their life depends on it. Yeah. Now, that's, that's something you cannot do on a Zoom call. <laughs> okay? So many people would hit that has to be in, that has to be in person, babe. Half the, half the people would be on mute by accident. <laughs> The music itself, I mean, music heals it. it. I mean, how many times have you heard people say, like, you know, that song saved my life or that song changed my life? And what does that mean when you hear something like that? I got a letter from a guy that said he was going to kill himself, and he drives his car up to the bridge and just jumps out of the car with the radio on and everything and goes up to the ledge, and he was just leaning forward, and Living on a Prayer came on the radio. And he heard the, you know, the opening, ooh, ooh, ah, ah, all that stuff. And he said, oh, that's my favorite song. Well, I want to hear it first before I kill myself. So he went back in the car. By the time it got to the last chorus, he drove home. Wow. Oh, my God. So Bon Jovi saves lives. Yeah. Proven. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, when you read that, I mean, what, what went through your mind when you read that note or that letter? Well, we've gotten so many letters yeah. from people that, you know, helped them get through their cancer struggle, um, that helped them survive loss and, you know, so many things from all over the world. And so that's why the song still to this day, I mean, last year, and it's a song that's over 30 years old and, and, uh, Last year, I think it got half a billion streams. Yeah. Just the streaming, you know, just on Spotify yeah. or something, and uh, or Spotify and Pandora combined, and um, it just never quits because hope never quits, and that song's all about hope. If we don't have hope, we have nothing. You know, we mm-hmm. there's no reason to live. So that song encourages people to believe in their dream even if they're not going to make it even if it all falls apart you have to keep living on a prayer I've been extraordinarily lucky to work with such incredible people and you know we made each other better you know Mm. working together and so that's what I love about collaboration and it's and it's just magic you know when you get into a room and you don't know what's gonna happen, and you start talking about things, and then somebody plays a riff, and then somebody says something, and before you know it, you've written Dude Looks Like a Lady. <laughs> That's right. And and also Angel, too, which was written in, was it 45 Minutes or something like that? I mean, mm-hmm. when, when you were working with the guys in Aerosmith, what was, was the approach different from, say, Kiss or Bon Jovi, or like, how did you assess that, you know, that well, project? After I'd had the big hits with Bon Jovi, Aerosmith had a deal with Geffen, and there was an extraordinary A&R guy there named 
John Claudner, legendary. Mm. And he called me and said, I want you to work with Aerosmith. And they had never worked with an outside songwriter. And so I was flown to Boston. I was forced on the group. And uh, I, got, I came into this warehouse where they had been doing rehearsals. And it was, it was set up like a live stage. So it had you know, Marshall lamps, you know, all the way to the ceiling. Yeah. <laughs> and, and on the floor, though, there were, it looked like an army of guitars. Uh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> and and every kind of guitar, like all in rows, like must have been a hundred guitars, so that Joe could just like look at his army of guitars and just pick one out. <laughs> That's, so Joe Perry. Out one. That's so Joe Perry. That's so Joe Perry. And the microphone, you know, had all of, you know, Stephen's like, scarves you know it was like wow and so i walked in and there was something happening on the side of the stage on the you know where the you know where they had the ref the monitor the monitor mix mm -hmm. station and they were playing kind of a reverse guitar thing mm. that went it was a loop and um steven welcomed me and brought me over and introduced me to Joe. And he said, well, what do you think about this? And uh, he started singing, you know, da-da, da-da, cruising for the ladies, da-da, da-da, cruising for the ladies. And I said, the first words out of my mouth, I hadn't even really said hello, was, that's really bad. <laughs> that's so corny. Are you kidding me? I don't. I don't think Van Halen would put it on the B side of their worst album. They wouldn't even make the the worst album they ever made. And they were like, Joe crossed his arms and like he was looking at me like, "Who is this guy? Get him out of here!" And uh, Stephen, who's like more of a people pleaser, you know, was like, "Well, I mean, when I first started singing, when I first started singing the, the, that riff, I was singing, dude looks like a lady." And I said, what? Dude looks like a lady. And Joe said, but we don't know what that means. <laughs> and I said, okay, I'm gay. I know what that means. You know, and yeah. I hoodwinked, hoodwinked them down this path to tell the story. That really was a mirror of what how he actually came up with that. Mm. The band had gone to a bar. Uh, not that they could drink because they were like on, you know, 12-step programs, you know, every which way but they went there to hang out to listen to music and at the end of this bar that was completely empty right at the end there was this lonely um you know kind of beauty with teased up platinum hair and you know beautiful smooth skin black nails curvy waist and uh they were all like drawing straws at who was going to go up there and say hello mm. And so suddenly she turns around and it's Vince Neil of Motley Crue. <laughs> oh, and that, they were all going like, oh, God. And then Steven said, that dude looks like a lady. Dude looks like a lady. Dude looks like a lady. And that's where the riff came up. That's like a scene in the video for dude where there's you know, the person turns around. I think from what I remember, I haven't seen the the dude looks like a video dude looks like a lady video in years, but I think I remember something like that. Well, <laughs> they also had John Claudner with his long kind of ZZ Top beard, yeah. dressed in a wedding dress. That was <laughs> okay. the A and R guy. Okay. Oh wow. You know, being yeah. a good sport, <laughs> uh, like sort of, sort of like the bearded lady in the, in a circus. Yeah. But in any case. Um, 
I talked them into it, and um, the song was stunning. And think about this era, I mean, it was God, so long ago. I mean, it was a true, you know, gender fluid, you know, trans anthem. Yeah. You know, where the second verse says, never judge a book by its cover, or who you're going to love by your lover. It's so appropriate and, for today, yeah. Yeah, so it really wasn't a, like a making fun of a you know, transvestite or transgender. It was kind of saying, hey, because he in the song says, my funky lady, I like it, like it, like it, like that. Mm -hmm. He doesn't, he doesn't take, he doesn't leave. He doesn't reject it. He goes for it because he likes how it looks. So, yeah. you know, it was amazing because they put it in Mrs. Doubtfire. I, I was just going to say. Mrs. Doubtfire, that's where Mrs. Doubtfire makes the, uh, that's where Mrs. Doubtfire does the broom dance. Yeah. <laughs> With the and, guitar, yeah. And it's like every little kid in the world knew that song. Yeah. And, you know, and, you know, did they really think about what it was saying? It was funny because a worker came over to my house and, I, and he said, oh, you, you write those songs for Aerosmith. And I said, yeah, I wrote Dude Looks Like a Lady. He went, he looked at me in front of me and he said, Dude Looks Like a Lady. Oh, I thought it was... Do a uh, do a naked lady. <laughs> well, that's do funny a how people. Lady. How, so do people... a naked lady. <laughs> so that was the song he wrote in his head because oh. that was more like what he thought made sense. Yeah. So it's funny how sometimes one can listen to a song and you think a certain lyric is yeah. a certain way, but it actually means something else. Yep. And that's one of the great things. Everybody brings their own story to a song, mm -hmm. and. You know, you'll hear a love song and it might apply to, you know, the person you married or it might apply to a long lost love or it might apply to your dog. And uh, every that's the thing. It's a co-creation. Yeah. The, the, the music is made and then the person that listens to it completes the artwork. How, and how, I love that. Yeah, I do too. I mean, how common is that for people to mishear lyrics? I remember growing up, like Jet City Woman by Queensryche, I always thought they were saying, can't you see that wall, man, by the melody? You know, so that doesn't make any sense for Jet City Woman. Okay, I get it now. Like, how often has, um, I mean, have you, did, would you get frustrated sometimes if people misheard something in a different way, or, or is it just part of the charm of music? Oh, it's, it's just all fun, yeah. you know? It's great, you know, the crazy things that people think that you, yeah. that you wrote. <laughs> And, um, you know, it's, it, I've lived a charmed life. I really have. I mean, I grew up in extreme poverty. I don't know if anyone's seen that movie called Moonlight. Yes. But that's yes. the project that I grew up in, in Miami, oh, wow. in Liberty City. And, you know, I managed, you know, to find a way to be successful. And, to, you know, as soon as I was made for loving you hit, I was able to move my mom to a nice apartment on Miami Beach, and she wasn't allowed to bring any furniture or even her clothes. I bought everything new, wow. and a new car, and everything. And she lived like a queen, like, from that moment on. And that that was always, you know, driving me. It's like, I want to take care of my mom, because, you know, she just, you know, couldn't hold down a job. She was always crying. She didn't even have money for her beat up car so she had to walk blocks and blocks for a bus you know poverty is terrible man oh, yeah. it's boring it's dangerous it's ugly and 
you know, I've tried everything I can do to make my life beautiful for my family and my friends and and share and, and um, you know, try to make the world a better place. I think a lot of times we don't get to hear you sing a whole lot, but there was one project that I found a few years ago. It was like, and it was mind-blowing, a super group about, I think, 30 years ago now for the Shocker soundtrack, The Dudes of Wrath. Uh, right. How did that come about? Because you've got yourself, Paul Stanley, uh, Tommy Lee, I think, Michael Anthony. Is Guy Man Dude on there? I'm trying to, I'm just going back I to the mic. I think Guy Man Dude was on there, too. <laughs> um, and, uh, like, um, I mean, all these people, like, how did that, just tell, tell me the story from what you what you remember about that. Well, you know, it was one of those cases where I just called people up and I said, hey, you want to be in the super group for this song? And they all showed up <laughs> and we did it. So it was that simple. And, um, you know, everyone was, you know, very encouraging of me. And I, I, I felt it was really like they were really kind of, you know, saying, OK, let's help Desmond out. OK. That's fantastic. I've, I was so curious. I heard that song one day, just found the soundtrack somewhere, and I said, this is really, really cool. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add? I mean, this has been such a wonderful chat. I've learned so much. I'm so grateful for the time you've given us. Uh, anything else you'd like to add that we uh, did not get a chance to cover? Next year, um, my original group, Desmond Child and Rouge, will be re-releasing the remastered two albums that we made and it will be followed with new material that we've been working on for the last few years so we'll be dropping singles into the you know the kind of uh you know social media spotify pandora space and um also i'll be dropping singles in that um on my own new music and I just recorded one with Alice Cooper. Okay. And so, um, you know, that'll probably be the first one. And I'm I'm going to lean it, lean. I'm going to lean on all the artists I work with to come and sing with me, and and create some interesting combinations of styles. That's my whole thing. I want to have like urban music with rock, and yeah. you know, jumping back and forth in all different genres, because I'm genre fluid. I think that's so cool, especially because, you know, that's and that's where a lot of music's going now. I think especially, I mean, today there's, you know, pop artists. I, I guess some people kind of hate that term, pop artists, but it's but it's all blending. The, and there's a little bit of rock. There's R&B. Like, it's kind of all coming together. I think that's really wonderful. I mean, there are, you know, artists that are really purists, like Joan Jett, who I've worked with. Uh, we, we did uh, I Hate Myself for Loving You. And uh, she's a purist. But then there are other artists that, that like experimenting. And I just think that the new artists that come along, having so much music accessible to them, they're borrowing little bits and pieces from all this diverse field that they're drawing from. And I don't think it'll it'll ever go back to just being like pure one way, you know, because it's more interesting to put some Latin beats and then some rock guitars and then some kind of, you know... Arab, you know, flutes or something, you know, it's just, it's, it, the, the palette is so varied and, and wide. It's exciting to hear what young people are going to start doing with their music. That's really cool. So true. Desmond Child, thank you so much for taking the time. It is an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you, David. Yeah. Yeah.